Hello, everyone. Welcome to Better Health While Aging, a podcast that gives you strategies and tips about improving the health and well-being of older adults. We discuss common health problems that affect people over age 60, the best ways to prevent and manage those problems, and we also often address common concerns and dilemmas that come up with aging parents and other older loved ones, like what to do if you're worried about falls or safety or memory or even the quality of a senior's health care. I'm your host, Dr. Leslie Kernison. I'm a practicing geriatrician, so that means I'm a medical doctor specialized in geriatrics, which is the art and science of modifying healthcare so that it works better for older people and for their families. Today's episode features a special guest, and I'll be speaking with Ann Tomlinson. She's been working for over 20 years as an aging policy analyst, a researcher, and a consultant, and she has especially worked on the financing of long-term care. She's the kind of person who gets to testify in front of Congress and explain issues related to how we pay for the care of older adults. She is also the founder of the website daughterhood.org, which she founded last year in 2015, and that website focuses on supporting women who are caring for aging relatives. I've been following Anne's work for quite a while now, so I'm thrilled that she was able to take some time today to join us on the podcast to talk about paying for care and coping with the caregiving experience. Anne, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So you've been working for over 20 years as a researcher and analyst in aging policy and in long-term care. And I thought it would be helpful to start with you telling us a little bit about what is long-term care, because even though I think almost everybody at some point faces these issues about care for older adults, most of the public is maybe not familiar with that term and what it means. Yes, absolutely. That comes up all the time. So at its essence, long-term care is the type of care that you receive or that a person receives when over some period of time, they are not able to do basic activities of life by themselves. So for example, if you have something that happens to you like an accident or um, you're diagnosed with multiple sclerosis or you're you know, you have a child who's born with a disability. All of those instances are examples of situations where because of a situation or an underlying condition, that person needs help from another person to just do some of the basic things that you and I take for granted, like bathing themselves or feeding themselves. So that's effectively what long-term care is. And it can really, it can happen to anyone that the need for that can happen to anyone at any time. It's a risk we all face. But when it comes to older adults, what are some sort of specific examples that we could share with the audience of, of long-term care? Yes, absolutely. So as you age, your risk of needing long-term care increases. And that's a result of, as you well know, you know, aging cells, uh, the presence of chronic underlying chronic illnesses, things that just make it more difficult for you either cognitively or physically to manage your daily life. And so... Uh, maybe the most obvious example of that might be if somebody has a stroke and the stroke disables them to a certain extent. They go through rehabilitation and maybe, you know, gain back some of their functioning, but but maybe not. And if not, over time, they, they will experience a need for help with certain things that they have to do around the house or, you know, just to take care of themselves. So, for instance, long-term care... Um, 
would be, I guess, having somebody come to the house regularly to help you cook meals or manage your house if you're having difficulty doing so right now. Exactly. So when we talk about long-term care, we kind of talk about two things. And, and there's a reason for that. We talk about, first and foremost, the need for the care. So what I just described was situations that create a need for the care. So an underlying illness and that and that the need for help is that lack of ability to function independently by yourself anymore and having to have another person do it. So then the second piece of that is that sort of how do you meet that need? And there's and I think that the typically when you say long-term care people immediately think of a nursing home. Because historically in America, the nursing home has been the place where people go or in institutions are places where people go when they can't take care of themselves anymore. But in reality, most long-term care is actually at any point in time being provided by a family member who's not receiving any pay for that. So when you help your family member with, you know, taking a bath or you feed your mother or you, um, you know, help them around the house or any number of different things. And it can really range. You know, you can have a severe need or you can have a moderate need or you can have a light need. And um, so most of the time, long-term care is actually being performed by family members. Um, but but the other ways in which you can get that care can be through um, home people who come into your home and are paid to provide services like that, helping you with those kinds of things. Or when you go into assisted living, assisted living facilities provide it, and of course, nursing homes. So those are some of the kind of key ways in which people get that support that they need when they have when they have a need. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it sort of sounds like people for some reason develop uh, some type of chronic impairment. And certainly among older adults, there's a spectrum where some people have you know, uh, the impairment's fairly mild, either um, because it's something very focused medically, or uh, it's just early in the stage of something like dementia or something like that. And so initially, they just need a little bit of help, but they need it long term, I guess, yeah, not just and for a very short period exactly. of time. And then some people need quite a lot of help, including, as you were mentioning, help bathing or help getting up out of a chair or what we often call um, a need for help with activities of daily living. Right. Which is so substantial that that's often a criteria for being eligible for nursing home care if you're on Medicaid and, you know, the state or a public program is potentially going to help with that. I know that that's often one of the criteria is needing help in activities of daily living and things that are so basic, like feeding yourself and getting up out of a chair and getting dressed. That's exactly right. No, I mean, that's a really good way of describing it, that you that there's really this continuum and, you know, people will, particularly in old age, you know, will sort of um, come into that continuum at different places. So like you said, somebody might really start with and maybe never even progress past the point of just having a little bit of of a challenge, say, for example, uh, managing their meals or um, Or just transportation. If you lose the ability to, to drive, Exactly. And, you know, just help getting to and from appointments, to and from social events. Exactly. You know, that's a certain type of need for long-term support. That's right. Exactly. And and just as I think it's really important to emphasize um, that for the subset of people who do progress to the point or kind of come in at the point of needing help from somebody else with, you know, multiple of those activities of daily living that you mentioned – that's definitely the point at which we say that person has a, a pretty severe need. 
know, that's a, we call that a high level of need. And, and it, it is exactly what you just said. It's that that's the place at which the a program like Medicaid would certify you as qualifying for nursing home care. Or if you're one of the few people who has a long-term care insurance policy, that's when the insurance policy will actually begin to pay benefits. It's that it's at that high level of need. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, I want to ask you more about Medicaid in a bit, because I know that's a common cause of con- a common source of confusion yes. among the public who pays um, for what. But I think, you know, maybe it would be helpful for us to just review for our listeners these terms, activities of daily living and the related one, instrumental activities of daily living. And one of the ways that I often describe it to people is that the activities of daily living are the skills that early in life we learn during early childhood. Right. They're the things that people learn when they're toddlers and preschoolers to get dressed, to walk, to feed yourself, to bathing is, you know, kind of a, a more unusual one. <laughs> and, and then the instrumental activities of daily living are the skills that we learn as teenagers to live independently, transportation, managing finances, meal preparation and home maintenance. And, and those are the skills you need more to live independently. And what I see among older adults and with families is that the instrumental activities of daily living are the ones that spouses and adult children often start helping with. Mm. And they do take time and effort, but often that's manageable. And it's really when a person reaches the point where they need help with activities of daily living, with the dressing, um, oh, toileting. That's a very... Right. I think, substantial one and one that we know often, you know, really overwhelms family caregivers when they start having to be very involved in taking a person to the bathroom or in managing incontinence. That tends to be extremely stressful and burdensome for people. Right. But that when uh, an older person needs help with activities of daily living, that just sort of takes everything up to another level. And many families still do it, but... um, but it's just a, a whole other level of, of uh, involvement and effort. Absolutely. And it's, um, it's actually amazing to me how many families do do that kind of caregiving. I mean, it's very physically exhausting. It requires even, you know, it requires professional expertise. It, you know, it's, you think, for example, you might know how to change a diaper. That seems like it would be really obvious, or particularly if you've done it with children. But it's a completely different skill set when it's, you know, when it's an, it's an adult. So, you know, many people come into those kinds of situations, particularly when you get to that ADL, that activity of daily living situation, and they cannot really uh, believe how much work it is and how little they kind of come into it with their own, with the right kinds of experience, with the right kinds of training. I don't know if you see that when you're dealing with families, but it's, I think it's really kind of astonishing. Yeah, no, I completely agree. I mean, I think all of it requires training and support and effort and that if you haven't been involved in it, it's easy to underestimate how much work it is. And I think as um, clinicians, we routinely underestimate mm. the the work that, that families are doing. And and you were mentioning that families are the, you know, a top provider of long-term care. And I think the estimate is that the annual value of the care they provide is something like $470 billion. Yeah. yeah. So it's really on the order of what we spend on... Medicare. Yeah, on a large program <laughs> like, uh, <laughs> like, like Medicare. So, so families often are, are doing this work and donating effectively their time and effort yep. to, to a relative. But otherwise, you know, the, the sort of question is, 
if you don't have family who are willing or able to do it, or if a family is looking for help doing it, who pays for this care? And so tell us what, uh, what you've learned about that. Sure. Um, and, and what's, what's happening now in terms of that? Sure. So I think one of the biggest misconceptions that, that, um, that people have, and it's understandable is you think that there's a program called Medicare and Medicare is the tax that we're all paying um, right now, uh, you know, through our employment, um, we all pay a payroll tax for into Social Security and Medicare. And those two programs are kind of the bedrock of retirement security for older adults, because one of them is Social Security, obviously, is designed to replace income. And then Medicare is designed to replace employment sponsored health insurance, because it assumes that you wouldn't be employed when you're older. So the I think many people go into their older years or old age thinking that they have, that one of those two programs is there to pay for everything that they need. Um, In other words, Medicare is uh, that, you know, they don't distinguish in their minds between all of those things that we just talked about that, you know, help with the bathing or help with the eating, all of those things. They don't distinguish between that and medical care because those two things really are so closely linked But the problem is that Medicare only pays for medical care. Medicare does not pay for long-term care. So it always comes, I think, frequently comes as a surprise when um, either you get into the situation yourself where you need that kind of care or your parent does to come to that realization that Medicare, in fact, does does not pay for it. So that's kind of the first thing that I always want to share with people in my, you know, in the blog that I write and the speaking that I do is, is just to keep in mind that that's not, that's not a program uh, for long-term care. So that's, that's surprising right there. And, and if I can add something, I mean, I think they, they, at least they used to use this term. I don't know if it's so widely used, but they used to describe it as custodial care, right? right? All the help all the things that are not sort of the direct provision of medical care. So all those things about even helping someone take, um, you know, getting someone to and from the doctor, helping them uh, with those instrumental activities of daily living in their home, paying their bills, or the actual hands-on activities of daily living care. That's all called custodial. Right. And not considered Medicare. Right. Exactly. Do they still use that term? Yeah. It's also called unskilled, unskilled sometimes. Unskilled custodial. Right. There's skilled medical services and then there's unskilled services. Exactly. Which, which I think just, again, just reflects our, our lack of appreciation for the immense effort that this work often is. Right. And I think it just, it, so just to digress for a moment, the, you know, I think the thing to keep in mind is that we, I think we're at a real crossroads as a, as a society in terms of how we're thinking about the care that we're going to provide to older adults and how we're going to pay for it. And, and what I mean by that is that, you know, the lifespan is, is increasing really rapidly at this point. I mean, even 20 years ago, we didn't expect, you know, back when we set up all these programs, when we set up Medicare and we set up Social Security there wasn't the same kind of need for long-term care that there is now because people just simply didn't live as long. And what comes with that longevity, what comes with that increasing lifespan is that we, for many people, you're going to have an increasing period of time, uh, or so I should say for the population, you're going to have an increasing period of time that people are going to need that kind of care. So our, our programs are kind of outdated. You know, they're, they're kind of old-fashioned. 
in the way that they're designed. It's, it's really hard to change them because they are run by the government. And so there's all of these things that, uh, you know, Congress has to act and everybody has to agree on how it's going to change. And so that's why, for example, Medicare has a home health benefit, but the home health benefit is very focused on providing therapy at home and, and some nursing, but not, you know, but not really long-term care. So I think that's the that's part of what creates this confusion is that it's not really set up for what we need anymore. Right. So you were saying that we have Medicare, which pays for medical care, which does not cover all this other additional care, which even though it is relevant to people's health and well-being, it's not considered medical care or quote unquote health care. And um, so then who does what are the other programs that might pay for long-term care? Right. So maybe sadly or shockingly, uh, when we estimate all, you know, the different contributors, like who really pays for this? Um, families pay for most of the long-term care that's delivered in the or the majority of the long-term care that's delivered in this country out of their own pockets and savings. So they either provide it themselves exactly. or they're paying for it. Exactly. They're paying someone else to to provide the, the needed supportive service. Exactly. So they're either providing it themselves, the older adult is paying for it themselves, or the family, the, you know, the older, uh, the adult children are paying for it. So those are three of the biggest sources of payment for long-term care. But there's another really important one, which is Medicaid. Again, not to be confused with Medicare. So it's, <laughs> the words are confusing. It took me a long time when I was starting my career to keep those straight. And sometimes I still get confused, but Medicaid is a government program that will pay for long-term care. The thing about it is that it's not available unless, well, first and foremost, you have to have a high level of need for long-term care. So all of those IADLs and things that we were talking about, those, you know, the need for help with, with some of those more, those mi more minor things, you're, you're severe, you're not, your need is not severe enough. But more importantly, Medicaid is a program for people who are poor. And um, so in order to qualify for Medicaid, you have to be at a point in your life where maybe you've already spent so much of your money on medical care and long-term care that you really have very little left. And that's when Medicaid kicks in. So think of it as like a safety net for people who have run out of money but still need care. Or maybe people who never had much money. Exactly. But it sounds like um, that, uh, especially maybe for older adults or, or long-term care, uh, a certain number of them are people who have spent down what they had. Exactly. Addressing long-term care needs. And so they finally become eligible right. for Medicaid. There are a lot of older adults who are on Medicaid because they've been on Medicaid their whole lives. They've received Medicaid um, as a program. I mean, they were on, enrolled in Medicaid as younger adults and they age into it, and so they're they're on it as older adults. And then there are other people who come to it later, later in life, because a, a whole set of circumstances have created um, a situation where they can no longer afford to pay for their own care. Mm -hmm. Well, one of the things maybe I would that I think makes Medicaid less than desirable is that it tends to pay more for nursing home care than home care. So if you do get to a point where you really, you need that financial help from Medicaid, it's sometimes the case that you're going to be a lot more likely 
to be able to get access to Medicaid if your family member already lives in a nursing home or if you live in a nursing home. That's the service for which you are entitled under Medicaid. Mm. More and more states are developing very robust home and community-based care programs, but those you're not guaranteed access to those, even if you qualify in every other way. Right. And I think also, you know, another thing that people don't always understand about Medicaid is that it's different from Medicare and that Medicare is a sort of, uh, you know, entirely federally run program, which means that it, it works. It doesn't vary from state to state usually so much. Exactly. Whereas Medicaid is this special um, federal state partnership where, um, you know, each state gets to have a certain amount of discretion in what, um, who's going to be eligible for Medicaid and how they get Medicaid and what kind of services are provided. And so there is this variability where your, your Medicaid services depend on where you live, exactly. on what state you're in. And I think that's sometimes a bit confusing. And then I know that many states have special programs for what, you know, in the policy world, they often uh, refer to as dual eligibles, right? people who are eligible for both Medicare and Medicaid, and then they might have special programs for, for those older adults. And so, so in that way, sometimes uh, people on Medicare are getting different types of services depending on the state, but that's if they're duly eligible for both Medicaid and Medicare, right. and if there's programs supporting that. So I think that's often very confusing to people how the Medicaid is, is different everywhere. And then they call Medicaid different things in different states. Right, right. <laughs> like, so for example, in, um, in California, it's Medi-Cal. Right. <laughs> so if you're in, med- if you're listening from California, you're in California, right? So it's Medi-Cal. And um, uh-huh. yeah, I think that Medicaid is, it's such a weird program. And it's another good example of a program that was set up kind of to do one thing. And rather than redo a whole new program to, in order to, meet needs, we've just sort of been grafting things onto it. So um, it is run by the states and states get to decide, you know, so many things about it. Uh, and so we have like 50 different little programs out there and, and where you live makes a huge difference. For example, you know, getting back to that dually eligible issue, you know, when you, if your parent is on Medicare, if you're on Medicaid and you're on Medicare, one of the biggest challenges is that those two programs don't sort of speak to each other. And so we have, and frankly, I mean, for anybody who has long-term care needs, getting, you know, the medical care system and the long-term care providers and the family and everybody's sort of coordinated and working together is a really hard thing to do. And um, so the, you know, so a lot of states are trying really hard um, with their dual eligibles to create um, sort of programs that cross cut that become like a single point of entry for people who have high needs and lots of healthcare issues, so that they're not, you know, navigating this really complicated system. Right. So, so to pay for for long term care, you were saying that families and older adults themselves are the number one contributor. Contributor, and then Medicaid, even though it was, I guess, initially designed to provide health services for people who are low income, uh, it ends up um, paying for quite a lot of long-term care, yep. including for older adults who have spent down or perhaps were in Medicaid before. And I should add that um, in many states, just being poor is usually not enough to qualify for 
for Medicaid, you often have to uh, either be pregnant or have young children or be disabled. Right. At least that's the case in California. So just just being poor in of itself, I think in most states does not does not cut it. And then what about other ways to pay for long term care, like uh, employers pitching in or long term care insurance? Is that yep. is that substantial or is that just really a small proportion of the way yeah. it gets paid for right now? We basically mentioned all the big ones. Uh, Medicaid and and family payments, um, but but we do have uh, an industry in America called the long term care insurance industry. So there's a product that's sold specifically to cover your costs of care when you when you hit that high level of need that we were talking about earlier. So we in policy world we refer to that as private long term care insurance, so as to not confuse it with healthcare insurance. And that product, unfortunately, they're, they're kind of a, a handful of issues with it. One is that, is that it is, you know, often sold individually, like an individual, um, you know, kind of financial product. So you might have an insurance agent kind of come to your house and explain the product to you and you go through a, an underwriting process and then you decide to buy it. So uh, that's kind of like a, not a very efficient way to sell an insurance product that really everybody everybody needs. That has changed. Recently, employers are starting to get more involved in offering the product. In other words, giving you that opportunity to buy in through the through your workplace, but they're not usually contributing to the premium. That premium is a hundred percent on you, and the premiums tend to be quite high. It's a really challenging product to sell and to manage because you're effectively saying to somebody, here's something I want you to buy when you're 45 or 50 or 55, usually in that range. And in 30 or 40 years when you need it, (laughs) which is a really long time uh, from now, you know, we're going to pay you a certain amount of money a day to cover your services. So as a product, it's, it's very clunky. I like to say, because it's a, because that insurance, company has to charge premiums sometimes up to $2,000 a year just to kind of make sure that they have kind of covered all their bases in terms of having the reserves that they need to pay out on that book of business when the time comes. Because as you, there's a lot of uncertainties between now and 30 years from now. So it's a complicated, clunky product and um, not that many people have it. And that's been the focus, a lot of the work that, that I've been doing in Washington with other groups and other, other policy people here, which is sort of how do we rethink uh, the insurance marketplace, both privately and maybe even publicly, so that we get many, many more people kind of insured for that high risk of long-term care need that they may face when they're, when they're much older. Mm-hmm. And can you speak a little bit about the high risk? Because even though most people will need at least a little help, isn't it actually a, a relatively small proportion that are going to need a lot of help for, for more than a few years? Exactly. Right. So that's part of the reason why I think that, that there's so many, that the, that the policy answer kind of to paying for all of this care that people need is to think about it in terms of insurance. Because it's really, it's not inevitable that you will end up at that situation of having that high level of need. Um, kind of going back to our need continuum, you know, our data shows that maybe 70% of everybody 
who turns 65 will at some point over the rest of their life have that kind of mild level of need that we were talking about for, um, you know, kind of those things like getting groceries and, and transportation and kind of managing the house. But a really a much smaller percentage of people, more like 50%, will actually hit that really high level of need that we were talking about where you need help with those basic activities like bathing or dressing or eating. And, um, well, 50% is less than 70%, but it's still, uh, still a lot, right? <laughs> it's still, it's still one person in two, exactly. uh, who might need some help with activities of daily living, but is that just for a, a fairly short period of time? of time? Right. So, so there's really a much smaller set about 14, 15% of all adults who are turning, who turn age 65, who will end up having that level of need for five or more years. So that's where the really high, high, high costs come in, the kind of what we call catastrophic costs. They will spend at a minimum, their costs will be somewhere in the order of a quarter of a million dollars. And that's the sort of floor if you get to that point. And, you know, Medicaid may be paying a chunk of that. You're paying a chunk of that. Um, Your family's providing unpaid care. I mean, we're kind of patching the system together effectively to kind of cover the cost of care for people for that 15% who are in that situation. And, um, and so that's the event for which I think many people in Washington feel like they'd be really great if we had some kind of pooled risk around that, we get everybody to kind of pay in chip in and, uh, and share in that risk, because only 15% of us will that who turn 65 are going to be in that situation. So maybe that makes sense as a way to pay for it. Mm-hmm. Well, that's certainly a catastrophic expense, but I'm I'm thinking about how you were saying, so uh, of people turning 65, 50% of them will need some uh, activity of daily living support. And then there's 15% who need it for more than five years. So does that mean there's about 35% who are going to need it for uh, less than five years, but still maybe a year or two? Exactly. Because what's the thought on how they should cover or how or how we collectively right should cover the cost of long-term care for them yeah. because that's still you know even three years I mean three years is better than a high level of need for five seven ten years which certainly happens to, to some people but but those three years could be could be difficult for an older person and their family so what's the latest thought on yeah on fair and affordable ways to provide support for people who fall into that yeah it's really challenging so of the you know, of the half of the people we were just talking about who are going to need it, you know, who are going to need that high level of care, really, you know, a third of them, over a third of them only need it for a year. Mm. So that's kind of, a, I guess, a, a relief. <laughs> I don't know. Um, but, you know, then there's, you know, another quarter of those who need it for five or more years. And everybody else kind of falls in that middle, like one year to five year range. And the way that uh, I would say kind of stakeholder groups here in Washington, people, analysts, people, there are like a number of different groups that um, have been really working hard on this and thinking about it and worried about it. Uh, because, you know, obviously, we're going to have a lot more people over age 65, you know, as as the population ages. And so it's starting to feel a little bit like a crisis, you know, if we're going to get everybody insured, we need to do it soon. So we're looking at kind of three different types of insurance that could be offered. One is what we call catastrophic. So that getting a product that would that would cover those catastrophic costs that happen for people who, 
you know, really have these long, long stretches of long-term care need. There's another way of thinking about this, which is like, maybe we, uh, maybe just, we should have an insurance product really for those first couple of years when most of the people who have need are going to need some level of insurance. So, you know, it's, it's like, you you know, if you're going to have this level of need, chances are, uh, you'll only have it for one or two years. And wouldn't that be a nice time to have the insurance, you know? So we call that kind of front end risk versus Mm -hmm. catastrophic risk. You know, in my mind, it would really be nice if we could just cover it all. Like, can we just have insurance for the 50%? Can we have kind of a comprehensive insurance? Um, Because we know that that really has the greatest impact um, on helping with those out-of-pocket expenses, you know, reducing the use reliance on Medicaid, creating more money in the system to improve services. Uh, But there's a lot of concern about how much that ends up costing because sometimes somebody has to pay for it. So, you know, so it's like, well, maybe we should try to think about really beefing up that private long-term care insurance marketplace for those front end things. So people can buy insurance for much smaller chunks of time and it'll make it less expensive and then have a public program on the back end that everybody pays into that covers these catastrophic costs. And in that way, we've sort of created a kind of a comprehensive approach through a private-public partnership. So when you say beef up the private insurance, does that mean sort of offering subsidies to to people or tax credits or kind of little incentives to get them to sign up for, for private insurance products and then maybe uh, setting some criteria for what those those products have to cover, you know, sort of similar, I guess, to the uh, insurance, health insurance marketplaces they were trying to create through Obamacare. Yeah, it's kind of two things, actually. Um, it's, it's addressing first and foremost, the design of the product and how it's offered so that it can be a cheaper, less expensive, but still high value product, and that it can be offered to more people. So if, for example, and this is just a for example, but it's illustrative. You know, if we have, if we said every employer must offer this, not that they have to pay for it, but they have to at least present it to their employees as and, and educate them on it. And then if we said, but the thing that they're presenting is something that's designed in a way to make it a lot less expensive than what's out the market now. And then if we added in another little incentive, which would be kind of to kind of goose that demand, right? You know, kind of really motivate a little bit of demand through the tax code, like through tax incentives or tax credits, or, um, you know, maybe using your 401k funds tax-free and penalty-free to pay the premium or something like that. Um, Those are all kinds of, those are examples of things that people are thinking about here in Washington to try to help improve access to and affordability of that private product to cover that kind of front end risk. Mm -hmm. Well, it sounds like it would certainly be an improvement uh, over what we have now, which is not much of anything, but it still sounds complicated for older adults and their families to navigate, which I think brings me to this website you created, Daughterhood. Yes. Which I think was was partly uh, I want you to tell us the story, but but my understanding is it was partly a response to you talking to people in your social circles yeah. who were trying to sort out this issue of 
how do I help my parents and how do I either provide the care or, or, or get care and who pays for it? So tell us a bit about, about this website and, and what you've learned from sort of talking to people who are kind of on the ground. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. No, thank you for mentioning that. Um, well, this was one of those things that just really emerged organically from exactly what you said. I I've been working on this for a long time here in Washington and, and for somebody like me, who's kind of analytically oriented, it's, I find it, and many people may find this bizarre, but I actually find it endlessly interesting. I think it's really interesting kind of intellectually to study how certain systems work and how I pay for it. But I had this big aha moment a couple of years ago when there were just a handful of good friends of mine who started coming to me with questions, not just about how to pay for long-term care, but also about how the healthcare system was set up and, and how it was working for them and, and their parents and just really just enormous challenges that they were facing as caregivers and care managers for their parents. And I, I, I just, it was almost like a crisis of sorts because I thought to myself, what, I don't know anything. I mean, I had that moment of like, <laughs> I, I know this stuff intellectually, but I don't really know how it, you know, when it comes down to the real world, how it really happens for people in their real lives, it's very different than the way I've understood it to be. And, uh, and it, and it caused me to really rethink my whole career, frankly, um, what am I doing? You know, <laughs> a little midlife crisis. Um, and what came out of it was, I didn't really have a great answer. You know, I didn't, I didn't decide, like, I guess some people do like, you know, I'm going to start a new company that's gonna, you know, I don't know, um, create a new kind of service or product or uh, answer to any of this. Um, but what did emerge was that I really felt the need to start to write about what I knew and, tr and try to relate it to what other people were going through and in kind of develop this relationship with a group of people or readers who could kind of almost co-create with me this like new way of providing information about this to the people who are in this situation. So I like to say daughterhood is like, it's a content and it's community and it's di designed not just to inform, but also hopefully maybe a little bit even inspire people who are in this situation. And that's our goal with the blog and the videos and the daughterhood, you know, it's, we're also doing something called daughterhood circles. So that's, that's where it came out. Um, but I feel like I've learned a tremendous amount just so going through the process of writing it, then talking to caregivers and having them email me and comment on Facebook and things like that. Um, I continually learn about what it's really like <laughs> at the ground level to deal with the healthcare system and the aging care system on behalf of a parent. Mm -hmm. Now, I think it's wonderful that, that you're doing this and especially that you're able to bring some of your expertise to it, because I think that definitely informs your, your content in a certain way. But there have been over the past several years that, that I've been doing this. I mean, there are a number of websites that are there to help people either yeah. with caregiving or with caring for aging parents. And, but still, you know, I feel like people are still struggling. And do you have a sense of, you know, what it is that we haven't yet <laughs> been able to do for people? Yeah, <laughs> through, no, I through um, all the, time. the existing websites communities? Yeah. I think about this all the time. It's definitely a nut we haven't cracked yet. I guess I have a few theories. I think that 
you know, I think it's a very complicated topic. It's very complicated to provide information to caregivers because they are, because it cross cuts so many different disciplines. So while, you know, I think I give really good information about certain things, um, I'm not a geriatrician, right? And that's a whole area that, that they need to know about that they can get from, say, from you. Um, but then there's, there's financial things and there are legal things and there are um, all of these emotional challenges having to do with interacting with your, with your siblings. I mean, I like to say, I hear, I hear from my uh, readers about, you know, kind of two big problems. One is, you know, how do I pay for this? And then the second one is how on earth do I deal with my siblings? <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> because, So I think it's, there's just this money and relationships, money and relationships. It always <laughs> comes down to that. It's like this nasty stew of life's biggest challenges. And, and so I think that affects how people consume information, but I also think it's just really, there's so many different ways it can be complicated and technical. Just to give you maybe one quick example, I had um, I had somebody get in touch with me, and I made a video out of this. Actually, it's it's on the website because it was so striking. Ultimately, she was trying to get home health Medicare home health nurse in her home for her in her dad's home, and she was being turned down because the doctor was telling her that the patient the person had to come into the doctor's office to get certified for home health. It's called a face to face. So. For a number of reasons, the doctor was wrong about how they were interpreting the rules. And but you can see as I'm telling this story, we are now down into this like little micro, <laughs> tiny little like nuanced set of regulations around the Medicare home health benefit that's affecting this woman's ability to get the care for her dad that he needs because he's at home and bedridden and homebound. And I think that it is hard for any one website for any one information source to kind of have everything that everybody needs. And so like she was on online, you know, desperately trying to find stuff. She didn't find it on my website, but at least she emailed me. And so because I'm, we're still relatively small, I was able to email her back, but you know, I don't know. I think that it, um, I think it's just that it's a very complicated and wide ranging set of issues that people confront. And so they struggle even in on a really good website, we're going to struggle, I think, to give them what they need. Yeah. Well, I feel like often, you know, we, we recommend that people contact their area agency on aging right. to get help and information resources. And those agencies get, you know, funds, right. public funds to do it, although it's probably not enough. And, you know, they're constantly struggling to have their funding renewed or appropriately increase. But in your experience, are family caregivers trying that and then they're not getting that kind of information from there? Or is it that they don't even know to oh, to access those area agencies on aging? Because I've wondered that. I think it's two things. I think absolutely there's that first order, right? There's that first like, because nobody, I mean, my experience is like nobody ever sees this coming. It's just like, you can't, until you're in this, and involved in caregiving or providing long-term care or needing long-term care, you can't really conceive of just exactly how hard it is. So then when it happens, you don't have a sense of what the resources are. But even then, then let's say, you know, you go online and you do discover that there are the area agencies on aging, you know, you find the one in your, in your community and you go to it. 
I mean, and, and it's and it does have some funding, although definitely not enough. There's nobody in that organization that I know of who's really willing to or prepared to tell you, you know, of the 40 home care agencies in your market, here's the three we recommend. Right. The government doesn't really want to be in. That's a very dangerous and difficult place for it to be. So it doesn't do that. So then what do you, you know, that's one of the things that's sort of like, I think we're really still not solved for, which is how can you, you know, how can you avoid visiting 20 assisted living facilities? (laughs) Find the one that's right for your parents. It's very overwhelming and you need help to do that. And um, Mm -hmm. I think, you know, there are, you know, some organizations that are trying to do that, but it's. Well, there are a variety of websites promising to help you do that, but I think knowing which ones are are doing the job well right. and kind of understanding the back end, you know, whether they have relationships with facilities exactly. and what those relationships are can can be tricky to to figure out. Well, I, I want to ask you another question about your website. And I, I think you've been asked this before, but some of our listeners might be wondering, so why is it called daughterhood? Right. Given that, uh, you know, a certain number of, of uh, men, yeah. sons, or not, sometimes it's not even a, a child of the older person. It might be a nephew, niece, or a friend. Right. Or a husband. Who, who or... is involved. Can you tell us a little bit more about your your, uh, your thinking there? Absolutely. Well, I think that one of the things that um, that I've come to understand, and this is part of sort of my theory about what the problem is with with websites to some extent, is that is that there are really so many different situations that you can be in when you're providing care. Um, you could be like, you could be a spouse, you can be a niece, a nephew, you can be a parent for a disabled child. I mean, caregiving is a very broad, it's a very broad um, category. And, and I always like to say, yeah, I have um, had two, two neighbors, both of whom are men and both of them provided heroic levels of caregiving for their mothers who lived with them for years and years and years and years and years. So I have the greatest amount of respect for male caregivers and for sons all over the world. I think they're fantastic. I think it's that my view is that, you know, gender is definitely one of those things that creates differences in how we experience certain challenges in life. So those sons are experiencing challenges, but I believe that some of those challenges tend to be different than what women face. And and there is, it is the case <laughs> that there are more women doing it and there are more women doing it at a hands-on level. But for me, just personally, I felt like I wanted to form a community that would, would provide some level of actual kind of emotional support. And that in order to do that in a really targeted and really focused way would be good to kind of have a, uh, you know, like a narrower focus. So on, you know, on daughters specifically, you know, not on wives or husbands or grandchildren or you know, sons, but on daughters. And, and I think that the key thing for me that I have learned even in doing this is that we have a really dysfunctional health and aging care system. It definitely is very suboptimal. And that I think that the key gender difference is that when men encounter this system, they're pretty good at saying, wow, that system is terrible. But when women encounter it, 
their tendency is to say, somehow I'm failing. Mm. That it's my failure. That it is harder for them to recognize what a great job they're doing, how very impossible of a situation they're in. And, you know, and to feel okay about it and to not feel like a failure. And that's, that for me is ultimately our, you know, our mission is to, is to, is to address that particular pain point along with all the information and expertise, you know, that we might be able to provide. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And one of the things that I've seen you mention a few times in your blog posts on the website is this idea of addressing the guilt and the shame. Right. That I think especially women, although I'm sure it happens to, you know, some men as well, but that, that often there's this, this uh, guilt that, that uh, we might not be doing enough. Can you talk a little bit more about what your experience has been in hearing from your, your readers and in creating this community with the role of guilt and shame yeah. in the caregiving experience? It's, it's, it's amazing to me. It is so huge that it is, I think it, it's sort of like, you know how, um, well, for anybody who's had a baby or as a parent, you, a mother, you go through this period where you have, you feel as though you should be feeling a certain way about it. Like, oh, I should be so happy because I have this baby, but really you're miserable because you're never sleeping and it's really hard and you're cut off from all your friends. <laughs> so yeah. this is like that experience on steroids and, and because you, and you feel isolated and cut off, but then you feel guilty for feeling mad about it. So if you feel, you feel like oh my gosh, I have literally just totally changed the entire course of my life to take care of my parents. And I have a lot of readers who tell me that. Like it is, this experience has completely derailed their career, you know, their family life, their marriage, um, whatever plans they had for their own retirement. And, and they feel ashamed of the fact that they feel upset about that. Because they're supposed to, because there's this expectation that we're supposed to honor our parents. It's supposed to be this, you know, that this, this like font of giving back to our parents. And, and um, when really they're just feeling really a lot of grief about the fact that they've had to give up so much to do this and they weren't expecting it. Mm-hmm. I almost wonder if it, you know, might be bittersweet for people when, you know, if they're caring for, for an older parent or have taken them into their home for to hear everybody else say, oh, that's so wonderful, you know, <laughs> yeah. of you to do it. You know, I can sort of envision how in some cases it might be be bittersweet because it is wonderful. And they might want to also say, yes, and it's very, it's wonderful. And it's very hard because of this and that, because um, I only had to take care of um, um, my, my father was ill, actually, and we had to, to take care of him uh, just for a week or two, and, and then he passed away. Mm. So I haven't had that experience, but I certainly remember feeling it, you know, when uh, my children were babies. Yes. That it's like, oh, it's so wonderful. You're home with your baby. And it was wonderful. But as you were saying, there were all these parts of it that were difficult and miserable, and, and one felt like it would be impolite yes. to, to bring that up or to try to get support for that because... right. Right. Because it's so wonderful. You're doing a wonderful thing. You know? Exactly. Having having a child or helping an, an right. older parent. And I think the other thing that I'm starting to pick up on a lot in the conversations that I have are is that 
And and actually, I was t- I was in fact talking to my. I was surprised to hear one of my neighbors. Um, I mentioned this is the, the one of the men actually, which was he said, you know, there's this when somebody is frail. Again, and so this is maybe a contrast to being a mother or having a small child. There's this sensation that you can never you can never do enough to make them comfortable, to find the right kind of care. You know, he he talked about you know. He had two sick parents in his house. He was running food, you know, from the kitchen up to these bedrooms, you know, delivering meals. And then, you know, his mother would say, can you just sit with me for a few minutes? You know, and he's got food on the stove. He's got his dad calling him and he he can't really sit with her for a few minutes. And so what happens is that then he feels like he's failed because he can't. There's just an endless amount of things that you can do. And you can't do them all. It's by right. definition, it's endless. <laughs> um, there's no, you know, and you know better than I do. I mean, you get to that decision making place too with healthcare decisions, where there's no right decision, there's no easy decision. So it's just, it's just really loaded with feelings of guilt and failure. And I think men, women tend to experience that more than men, but men definitely do too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, good point. Well, so in closing, I mean, at this point, what do you recommend to to um, family caregivers, you know, especially women who come to you saying, I just don't know what to do about my parent? Do you have a couple of suggestions, both for the the money part and then just for coping? Right. Well, you know, I think uh, I'm, one of the things that I have been that I think I really would want to encourage everybody to do is, is you is really try to find support somewhere. Do not underestimate how hard it is or is going to be or how long it's going to go on. And you have to build some kind of community for yourself. And it sounds really hard. It's really hard because lots of times people can't find other people in this situation and, you know, but again, those area agencies on aging, this is one of the places they excel is they really, they have people who are advocates and ombudsmen and they have support groups and they have resources and, uh, you know, you can plug in there. You, there's a, you know, there's a wonderful website called caregiving.com that is really a very thriving community of people who meet online you know, through their writing and things like that, which I think is fantastic. Um, we are trying to start daughterhood circles and communities all over the U.S. It's very, very hard, again, because, you know, we're small and we're growing, but we, you know, finding and, you know, recruiting leaders and equipping them and getting the word out, is, it's challenging. But, um, you know, that's the, uh, hopefully someday <laughs> there will mm-hmm. be one in your community for you. Um, and, uh, you can help start one, but I think, I think, so I think number one is just, is just trying as hard as possible to kind of plug into some kind of support. You are, do not, you know, think that this, you have to be an Island here. Um, and then I think as far as, as money goes, I would say this is harder to do, but as a woman, especially if you're a woman listening to this, you know, you try to protect your, you know, you, you're affected by this financially. Try to protect your own ability to earn money, to continue to pay into your own retirement, to buy your own long-term care insurance if you can, um, because this is you're going to have a long life too, hopefully. 
And unfortunately, caregiving can kind of take you off track of, of your of preparing for your own retirement and being financially secure. So before you start to plow a lot of your own money into their care, you know, think very carefully about that and have conversations with your family and your and your parents because you you know, you have a long way to go <laughs> in your life, hopefully. So you want to be ready uh, for your own for your own old age. Right. And uh, I know that you're, you know, much of your professional work has been working with Medicaid and, and large uh, foundations and bigger groups. But for sort of individuals and families, do you have any sense of whether working with a uh, sort of elder care financial advisor or, you know, a professional in finance or law with specific expertise in figuring out how to look at your assets Mm, and address paying for care. Do you know if that's generally worthwhile for people? I do think so. Yeah, that's a good suggestion. Um, I hesitate a little bit. Because that's an expense. Exactly. I I know people are often reluctant to do, but if it's going to save them money on the other end, I sort of wonder. I know. I don't know enough about it to know whether to suggest it. There is um, a wonderful um, website. It's the national, and now I'm going to, of course, forget the name of it, but it's, it's a, it's basically um, elder law attorneys. That, that's the name of the profession. I'm actually uh, writing a blog about it right now um, to explain it a little bit more, but I'm, this falls in the category of like uh, the national Academy of elder law attorneys is the website. And, um, and it, explains a lot about what elder law attorneys do and how to find one. Mm -hmm. I think if you find a really good elder law attorney, it is worth the expense because there are so, I mean, this gets, it's like financial planning, advanced care planning, and, and you're really helping you figure out what your options are with respect to Medicaid. Right. And this is maybe that, you know, think about Medicaid is every state has a lot of sort of detailed rules and regulations and the other law attorney will know what those are and they'll be able to help you navigate that, you know, in a perfectly above board and legal way. But it's just you you need to know sooner rather than later. Right. What your options might yeah. be in, I'm a in fan regards to that. Law attorneys, I think they're great. Um, I think at like anything like this, you know, I'm sure as you would say this about a geriatrician, right? You know, it's like, yes, geriatricians in theory are good, but you know, every, you want to find the right one for you and the attorneys like that too. Right. And, um, and I know also that for some older people, they, you know, they have a home, which is potentially an asset. And so our elder law attorney is often able to advise people as to how to leverage absolutely the asset of their home. Because yes. I, I feel like that's another sort of option that people might want to consider, but you definitely need professional help in determining what you might be able to do. Yes. I mean, I think if you want to stay in your home and you want to receive Medicaid or you want to move into a nursing home and you want to keep your home, like those kinds of things are are what elder law attorneys are really good at. If you're going to sell your home as a way of paying for something that Medicaid doesn't cover, which, for example, tends to be things like assisted living or independent living, um, you know, you'd really you need the attorney just to help you set up kind of the the funds that's going to help you use that money wisely over the rest of your life. So, you know, in other words, you sell the house, you have all that money and it needs to be protected. Uh, not for Medicaid, but just, it just needs to be set up in a way that enables you to pay for the things that you need going forward. So right. that's a, 
elder law attorneys are good. Financial advisors are important, are important too. I mean, I think part of the thing that makes this all really hard is there's a lot of different types of organizations, of people, you know, professionals who are available to help and just figuring out who to plug into and at the right time. And, and some organizations are starting to offer more of a one-stop shop. Um, I've even heard of elder law attorneys, you know, getting together with social workers and right. nurses and sort of creating a whole, you know, kind of like life care product, which I love. I think that's a great idea. Well, I think it certainly makes sense as an idea, you know, to sort of combine the different disciplines or professions and and that in general, we know that often, you know, the best care for older adults comes from this this team that combines multiple different types of expertise. Right to address all the different angles on what's happening with this older person and their family and their needs now and anticipating how to, to best meet those needs right. for, for the future. So, well, this has been really helpful. Well, I'll certainly put a link to this blog post that you're, that you're working on about this topic and to your website. Uh, well, let's hope that the work that you and your colleagues are doing in terms of finding better options for us to pay for long-term care, that it comes to fruition soon. I hope so. And that we have, uh, have better options. Thank you for doing this work. Sure. Thank you. Thanks for having me on your show. I hope you all enjoyed those insights from Anne Tomlinson. Again, she is an expert in the financing of long-term care and is also the founder of the website daughterhood.org, which helps women involved in the care of older parents. For links related to this episode's discussion, be sure to visit the show notes page for this episode. You can find those at betterhealthwhileaging.net slash podcast, and that will take you to a list of recent episodes, including this one. And of course, if you have any questions about something you heard in this episode, please post your question in the comments section under the show notes for the episode. Last but not least, if you've been enjoying the podcast, don't forget to support us by subscribing on iTunes. And you can also tell your friends who you think might enjoy the podcast as well. If you are already subscribed, please do leave a rating and review. This makes it easier for others to discover our show in iTunes, and I would love for the many people who are interested in health or aging or family caregivers to be able to find it and give it a chance. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Dr. Leslie Kernison, and I'm looking forward to you joining us for future episodes.